And now continuing our study in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Hear now God's word from Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to men knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And you masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we praise you for your word. It is holy. It is true. We can stake our lives on it. There is nothing here that's going to lead us astray. And so we praise you for communicating to us and I pray that you would able, uh, enable us to clear our heads and clear our hearts now to receive your word. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Help me to communicate clearly. And Father, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O oh God, our rock and our nearest kinsman. Amen. Amen. People of God, the institution of the family under the Roman Empire possessed a character and a culture that would be almost entirely alien to us today. Uh, we have a concept of a family, of a romantically connected man and woman tenderly raising their children together. But that bears very little resemblance at all to the Roman definition of a family. It's impossible to fully grasp the relationship dynamics of the Roman household without taking into account the role of the paterfamilias. Uh, you might remember, you might have heard that term if you've, uh, if you've seen, oh brother, where art thou? Remember, uh, he says, I'm the paterfamilias. Well, it's a, it's a term and it was a role in, uh, in ancient Rome. The paterfamilias was the father of the family. He's the master of the house. The paterfamilias was the eldest living male in the family who had absolute control, not only over the property of the family, but also absolute control over the members of the family themselves, children and grandchildren, wives, other adopted relatives, and a house full of slaves were all under his unquestioned, unmitigated command and authority. The state had delivered into his hand this authority. The state had actually conceded to him the powers of life and death over everyone in the house. And so if his wife displeased him, he could physically punish her if he so desired. He could even take her own life without any legal consequences, provided he had good reason. And I'm sure he always had a good reason. When children were born, they were brought by the servants to the feet of the paterfamilias and laid down at the feet of the paterfamilias. And if, if he recognized them, and if he delighted in them, then they could be raised as full sons and daughters with all the inheritance and all full membership in the household. However, if, if they uh, were deformed in any way, or if, he just, if they didn't please him, or if he thought that they were the result of an adulterous affair, he could have them sent away, given away, or more likely exposed to the elements and the wild beasts. Such was the power of the paterfamilias. He could abandon his own offspring to the elements and nobody would say anything. 
And as the children grew up in his house, he could discipline his children, however harshly and however brutally he desired. He could sell his own son into slavery if he wanted. He could end the marriages of his children or of his grandchildren even if the marriages of his offspring didn't please him. And so when it came to the servants of the house, I mean, if that's the way you treat your wife, if that's the way you can treat your son, when it came to the servants of the house, he could treat them with any level of violence that he considered necessary, even to the death of the slave without any repercussions. There was one Roman nobleman who was known to keep in his house a tank of lampreys. They're often called lamprey eels because they kind of look like eels, but they're this water creature that are, uh, you know, kind of, like a, kind of like a sea snake or something like that. I'm sure you've seen them before. And so he kept this tank of lampreys in his house, and when a servant displeased him, he would throw the servant into the tank to be devoured. In one famous incident, he threatened to throw in a servant who had clumsily knocked over and broken a crystal goblet. That servant's life was spared just because the guest of the evening was Caesar Augustus. And Augustus thought even that was too far for a Roman. And we don't, we're not even going to do that. We're not going to do there. But if Caesar had not been there, no one else ordinarily would have raised a protest. That slave is your property, body, mind, and soul to do with as you please. And if it pleases you to throw them in a tank of lampreys for breaking a crystal goblet, so be it. That's up to you. Nobody's going to stop you. The paterfamilias held all the powers of life and death over his house. And there is no one in the society who would question or challenge his position of control. But then in the first century, here comes the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Ephesian church. And he begins to deconstruct brick by brick to, to dismantle the Roman paterfamilias. There's a new way to order society in Jesus. Jesus shows us what the true head of the house, the true head of the family looks like, how he acts, how he treats the people he's responsible for. And it's nothing like the paterfamilias. Paul says some things here that we've read so far in this letter that would have been absolutely unthinkable in the first century uh, pagan context in the first century Roman family it would have been absolutely unthinkable. He tells husbands to love their wives and crucify themselves for their wives. And the paterfamilia says, preposterous. That's absolutely ridiculous. What do you think? I'm going to love my wife and give myself for her, even crucifying myself for her. You got that backwards, Paul. She exists to make me happy. And if she doesn't make me happy, she's the one who's dying, not me. I'm the paterfamilias. So Paul says, no, no, no. You see, Jesus is the head of his wife. And he gets to be her head because he's died for her. This is the new way. This is the way that's pleasing to God. This is in keeping with his design. Also, as Paul has said, a man leaves his father and mother and they go start a new family. Granddaddy is not in charge of the next generation. Granddaddy's not even in charge of his own children's marriages, uh, past, past raising them and, and giving them in marriage. So the paterfamilias needs to butt out of his son's and grandson's business. And Paul clearly states that. A man leaves his father and mother. Paul says, don't exasperate your children, fathers. Don't provoke your children to wrath. Don't frustrate them. In, in order to not frustrate your children, you're going to have to put yourself in their position. And you're going to have to think about, how am I coming across? 
How am I communicating? You have to think about whether you're being ridiculous in your demands, whether you are considering their frame. Are you asking a two-year-old to do something that only a 15-year-old can do or understand? Well, the paterfamilias would say that's outrageous. My children are mine to do with as I please. I allowed them to live. After all, I graciously permitted them to live in my house. And Paul says, no, not at all. Stop it. Fathers, nurture your children. Children need fatherly tenderness and compassion and correction and fathers who won't ignore or marginalize their children. And so now Paul turns to servants. And just as he required wives to respect their husbands and just as he required children to obey their parents, he now commands servants to serve their masters as they serve the Lord Jesus. And then turning back to the master, Paul says, now you give up threatening. You give up this violent treatment of your servants. Remember, Paul says, that you are a servant yourself. And this is a theme we've seen throughout the whole section here. Paul began with the duty of wives before he talked about husbands, because all of humanity, as we've seen, all of humanity is in a wifely position. All of humanity is being raised up in the church, under the tutelage of the church and the discipleship of the church, as a fit bride for the Lord Jesus. That is, that, is the, that is the arc of history. So he begins with wives because his, his requirements of wives are in, in a sense, in a broader sense, requirements of us all. And then he goes to children before he talks about fathers because the duties of children are required of all of us. We are all children of our heavenly father. Now as he goes to servants, he starts with servants first because why? Well, we're all the servants of the Lord Jesus. And so what is said to servants is important and vital for all of us and needs to be heeded by all of us. And so step by step, he's calling the first century man to think about his wife and her needs, to put himself in her shoes, to consider his treatment of his children and his responsibilities to them by calling him now to knock off the harsh treatment of his servants. The pagan male is called to account for the abusive, violent misuse of his position and authority over his house. And if he listens and if he obeys, he's transformed. And not only is his house transformed, but society is transformed as he learns what it's like to submit himself both to the needs of the people he's called to serve and to the requirements of the Lord Jesus. I'm afraid that we read the section of scripture, both beginning with the commands to wives and husbands and children and fathers and to servants and masters. I think we just look at this, well, this nice little nuggets of practical advice. Uh, this is just good stuff about family living and about work. And we miss how transformative, how revolutionary, how earth shattering these principles would have been for first century men. And, and, and isn't it strange how it's always assumed by, by everyone, that, that the church and the, and the culture that the church produced in the West, that, that the church is just inherently misogynistic, the church is chauvinistic, it's hateful to women, it's oppressive. I mean, that's just our starting point, right? The church and Western culture is misogynistic and hateful and oppressive. Uh, because we, we're, we're allowed to think that way because Christian culture is the air we breathe. And we, we just assume that all the good things that we enjoy have always been there in nature. When the fact is, there can be no such thing as a modern day feminist without 2,000 years of the church's influence upon culture to elevate and honor women. I mean, that's, it's impossible to have a, have a feminist without 2,000 years of the church's tutelage and discipline of Western culture. But... 
Now, uh, we, we just, she turns around now and she says the church is the problem for all of this. Well, no, that's not actually the problem. It's natural man apart from Christ. Natural man oppresses woman. Natural man apart from the Lord Jesus abuses women and children. Pagan societies treat women and children as property. And pagan societies are always ruled by these brutal, beastly men in total domination over women and children. It is the church that gives women and children protection and the air to breathe and the room to grow. Now, as we slip back into paganism and in our culture, as we're doing, we're, we're seeing it right now, we're, we're slipping back in for a time. I don't know what the Lord is doing with our Western civilization in the long term, but right now we're slipping back into paganism. And for a time, it will be continued to, it'll, will continue to be overrun by, you know, this, uh, this contingent of effeminate men. That's the case now. But if we don't repent, and if the West continues to ignore the Lord Jesus, we're even more likely in the long run to be further subjected to these monstrous bullies, these hateful, contentious, belligerent men who will revive the old institution of the paterfamilias, maybe not in name, but certainly in practice as much as they can. Because at the end of the day, society's changed. Culture's changed, but biology hasn't changed. Men are still created to be physically larger and stronger. In, in both physicality and personality, men uh, dominate all the time. And, and either that strength is going to be put to a holy, righteous use of protecting and providing and leading and nurturing their wives and children, or that strength is going to be turned against their wives and children to oppress them and mistreat them. And of course, that is what happened in the pagan world. That is what Paul is addressing, this, this use of masculine strength to oppress women and children and everyone under them, including, including certainly their servants. So Paul calls men to channel their God-given masculine strengths and gifts in a disciplined, godly way to follow the Lord Jesus as the man. Jesus is the king who dies for his people. Jesus is the master. He's this, Jesus is this strange kind of paterfamilias that nobody's ever seen before. Certainly he's the master of the house, but he lays down his life for his servants. We've never, who does that? Nobody does that. You don't die for your servants. You put them out there to die for you. But Jesus becomes a servant himself. He gets down on his knees and he washes his servants' feet. Who does that? It's unthinkable. It's out of this world. But this is the way he calls all men to follow him. So now turning to his instruction on servants at the beginning, Paul says, bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. Now we might ask, well, on this one, why didn't Paul start with masters and why didn't he just tell them, you know, masters, here's how to solve this. You just need to free all your slaves. Wouldn't that be true sacrifice? Wouldn't that be the best thing to do? Why does Paul work within this institution of slavery instead of preaching against it outright? Well, certainly uh, something that we need to get uh, out on the ground floor before we have this discussion is that the whole trajectory of the story of redemption is from bondage to freedom. And as, and as nations mature under the discipleship of Jesus, we move as societies also. The more we submit to the Lord Jesus, the more our society moves from bondage to freedom, from slavery to liberty. It is unquestionably the story of salvation that we and nations move from slavery to liberty. It is absolutely, uh, un unquestionably 
the theme of, 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 of history that God is working out as the gospel works in nations and men. And we also need to reckon with at the same time that the world at the time of Paul's writing was a world where slavery for them, slavery for them was as ubiquitous as electricity is for us. I mean, so many of their comforts and so many of the things that they were just able to do and get done were because they had this massive workforce that was in bondage that had to do pretty much whatever they were told to do. And so the, they could no more imagine in the first century, they could no more imagine getting along in a world without enslaved human labor, labor than, than we could get by without electricity. We, uh, getting by without electricity would significantly uh, transform our entire life. Our entire civilization would be undermined if we, if we didn't have electricity. Think of all the things that would fall apart. How would you eat? Where would you work? What would you do? Everything would fall apart. So uh, the ancient world, it's important to, to reckon with this, the ancient world rested on the institution of slavery. It is absolutely, the ancient world rested on the institution of slavery. There were many ways to become a slave. You could be captured in battle. You could uh, sell yourself into indentured servitude to pay off a debt. You could be taken in as an abandoned child. There were several ways. And there were also ways to buy your freedom under the Roman Empire uh, as well. A slavery for millions of people was the only alternative to, to death. You were either killed in battle or you were taken into slavery. Which would you prefer? Well, it depends on where you're going. If you're going to the mines, you might prefer to die than to be enslaved. If you're going to go work in someone's house and be their personal uh, attendant, you might rather live and, and be a servant. But, but for so many people, the, the choices are either starving or to be a servant in the house of a lord or, or a lady. Uh, so it was, it was one way to get by. It was one way to get through a very cold, harsh, brutal uh, world at the time. So, and, and, and I'm not exaggerating when I say the ancient world rested upon the institution of slavery. Uh, in, in many cities, there were two to three times more slaves in the city than there were free men. In Italy alone, it's estimated that in the first century, there were between two and three million slaves in Italy alone. That's not counting the rest of the empire. So just imagine that Paul's recommendation was, and as if anybody would hear him, and as if anybody would follow him at this point, imagine if his recommendation was that we just snap a finger and everyone is freed at once. Well, it would, buy, it would be very naive to assume that everything would just hold together. Where would they work? How are they going to live? Who's going to feed them? Who's going to care for them? How are they going to be educated? So it will take many centuries and much cultural reformation under the church to move an empire from one that's being recognized by its bondage to one known by its freedoms. At the same time, this is other important stuff that we need to reckon with as we wrestle with this question. The fact is God's law never condemns slavery altogether. When we get the law of Moses, it takes the institution of slavery for granted at the same time, it puts limits on the slaveholder that were absolutely unknown in the ancient world. God's law limits the amount of control that a master has over the slave's person. In fact, under God's law, you could say uh, a master really only has a right to the labor of his servant. He doesn't have a right to the body of his servant, to his mind, to his heart. He has only a right to his labor. Because if a master kills him, that's murder. 
It's, it's, it's not like under the Roman law. In God's law, if you kill your servant, that's, that's murder. God secures the Sabbath for the servant. If a master forces a servant to commit a crime, the master is held guilty. So God's law doesn't treat the slave as property that the master can do whatever he will with. God's law puts limits on this institution, and God's law puts, uh, puts us on a trajectory toward liberty. Uh, uh, so that, you know, just, just snapping a favor, finger or instituting uh, some kind of uh, across-the-board abolition, it doesn't remove slavery. It just moves slavery around. Uh, we're, we're still dealing with many forms of slavery and many forms of bondage in the modern world uh, that still need to be reckoned with and still need to be abolished. Uh, and, and we get there not by just snapping our finger and say, well, slavery's outlawed. And we say, okay, slavery's outlawed. That's fine. Well, no, there's a reformation that has to happen in the human heart and in and through the church and in and through civilization to move us completely and entirely from bondage to liberty. And so now in the new covenant, we intensify these responsibilities. We already know the responsibilities of a master to his servant under God's law. And now in the new covenant, we even, we even further elevate and intensify those responsibilities. Because now Paul's message is, master, your servant is your brother. Before God, your servant is your brother. You may have a different relationship through most of the week, but when you come into worship, your servant is not your footstool. You come into worship, you don't order your servant around. Your servant is your brother, is your sister. This, by the way, is also true of men and women parents and children. In worship before God, you have equal standing before God. So just as the master doesn't have special elevated status in the church over his servant, neither does a father have a, have a special elevated status in the church before God over his children. Uh, my, my son is my brother. My, sis, my, my daughter is my sister. My wife is my sister in worship before God. Uh, one crazy example of this, I was in a church one time that was right off of an Air Force base, and in the church we had both officers and enlisted men, and uh, it, it kept popping up where the officers were trying to pull rank in church over the enlisted men in church. And, we, and thankfully we had a pastor who said, no, 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 you, you don't get, stop it, cut this out. In worship before God, in the church, we are all standing as equals before God, male and female, Jew and Gentile, slave and free. There are none of these distinctions. And so once you start understanding and realizing that my servant is my brother, the change in the Reformation is already starting to, to take place. Slavery is not long for the world when you consider your servant as, as your brother with equal standing before God. You see it in Paul's letter to Philemon as he pleads with him. He says, grant Onesimus his freedom and count him as a brother in Christ. So, so getting to the heart of it, slavery as an institution and all of its little fingers that works its way through every part of human life Slavery ends up being eradicated and abolished by the work of the gospel in the lives of men. And if you study history, we already, we already kind of abolished slavery once uh, in the Middle Ages, and then it came back up again in the 18th, 19th century, and we had to abolish it again. Um, in the same way abortion has already been abolished in Western civilization, it's, it's raised up again, and hopefully we'll abolish it for the last, the last time. 
But we don't get there by fomenting against authority. We don't get there by revolt. The message of Paul is the opposite of revolt. It's humility, it's patience, it's obedience. And if God chooses to bless us with freedom on his time, if he delivers us, that's up to him like he did so many times with his people when he put them into bondage as well. You see, God has put his people in the school of slavery to train them and discipline them and prepare them for rule. It happened to Daniel, it happened to Joseph, uh, it happened to Israel as a whole, and, and that's, uh, God has used this institution for the discipline and training of his people. And so that's the work that Paul begins here by addressing both servants and masters, this work, this kneading, kneading the gospel into the loaf to, to let, that, let that leaven start to work its way throughout. And he addresses both servants and masters. Now, everyone wants to take these verses and just make direct application say, we don't have really servants and masters today. So maybe this is just about employees and employers. Um, maybe that's how we should read this. Well, I think there's some things we can extrapolate from that, and I will. Um, I don't want to water it down, however. This is not instruction for, you know, employees and employers. That's, that's not uh, the, the direct application. This is instruction to first century slaves. And if slaves were to obey this way, if they were to honor their masters this way, then how much more should we honor and obey our earthly authorities? So let's hear it again. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. The Bible never lets us get away with thinking that the Bible is an egalitarian book. You can't, you can't squeeze the Bible into any kind of egalitarian framework, that, that the Bible's all about just flattening out the hierarchies in society, that, that real freedom and liberty means that there are no clearly defined roles and no one answers to anyone. Now, if the Bible has instructions to slaves, and if the Bible tells them to obey, then certainly all of us are expected in our respective roles and callings and stations in life, we are all called to obey the authorities that God has placed over us. And it also reminds us that Jesus is our master. Now, now in Jesus, the master-servant relationship has been transformed, but that transformation has not made us equals with Jesus, right? We're his servants, he is our master, and, and we we are, are still uh, uh, subject to him. He is still husband. We are still bride. God is still father. We are still children. And those hierarchies he's placed in human civilization for order and for peace and for our life and for our well-being. Where you don't have order, where you, don't, where you ignore the hierarchies God has placed in the world, where we don't peacefully abide and submit within them, you have chaos, you have death, you don't have any order at all. And so you, we can't squeeze the Bible into any kind of egalitarian framework if we have language like this. And so Paul says to the servant, he says, obey with fear and trembling in sincerity as to Christ. He's not encouraging them to have this perpetual, you know, flinching or, or timidity. That's not what he means by fear and trembling. But he's saying, just as you fear Christ, 
You serve your master with reverence, knowing his rule and authority and judgment. We serve our masters, all those who are placed over us, as we serve Christ. So we serve Christ with a holy fear. We serve the Lord Jesus knowing we don't, we don't want to displease him. We want to make the Lord Jesus happy. We want to be blessed. We want to do what he says. So if we wouldn't cop an attitude with Jesus... We don't with our earthly masters. Just as we seek to have a reverent attitude when Jesus tells us to do something, so we treat our earthly authorities with the same respect. Uh, Paul says, he says, don't do this with eye service as men pleasers. So much of what we do and what we say and what we plan and so much of what we post on uh, public, you know, social media type stuff uh, is wrapped up on how, uh, on building this image of our lives, this image of ourselves. I'm not really that concerned about whether I'm truly pursuing righteousness or holiness. I, I just want to make sure everybody knows that it looks like I am. I teased the uh, kids at camp this past year of the, uh, you know, the Instagram devotional photographs. You know, you gotta, if, you, if you're going to study the Bible, you got to take a picture of your Bible, right? You got to put your glasses there and you got to put your pen. You got to have your tea or your coffee and maybe a view off your deck so you can see like the sunlight and the birds chirping. You got to take a picture. Now, whether you actually read or understand the Bible is not really material. But the fact is you've taken a picture of your Bible study and so that counts, right? That's, that really goes a long way and that's what matters. Now, I'm not, if any of y'all have ever done that, I'm not making fun of you, but I'm just saying this is kind of the, the kind of the culture. This is kind of the zeitgeist that, that we, we live in. It, it's more important to, to look a certain way. It's, it's more important to a, give an appearance of holiness, to spray something with holy Lysol or to put holy wallpaper over it than to be actually faithful and righteous and principled. We, we do things based on how is this going to look. We allow other people and their criticisms to live inside our head and that actually keeps us from doing righteousness. That, that actually keeps us from acting righteously because there are very good things that we are called to do that may not always look right to uninformed, ignorant, unbelieving, hypocritical people. If you need an example, look at the cross. The cross doesn't look right. And anybody could criticize Jesus and say, what kind of savior is that? What kind of king is that to let himself get strung up on a cross like that? That's, that's shameful. That's awful. That doesn't look right. Well, you're right. It doesn't look right, but it is the most holy, righteous thing that ever happened. And it didn't look right. You see, but was Jesus really concerned about appearances on the cross? Was, was that men pleasing? Was that eye service? No, most, most certainly no. There, and at the same time, there are some very bad things that look completely normal. So you can get away looking normal and have a rotten black heart of hatefulness brewing in your, in your chest. Um, so so we, don't, we don't cover over things with this veneer of righteousness just to keep everything looking nice. Sometimes righteousness and justice require you to bring an ugly thing out center stage and say, this is what's going on, this is what happened, and here's how we're fixing it. In all things, Paul says, don't be men pleasers or be God pleasers, doing the will of God from the heart. You work for the Lord and not for men. 
God is ultimately the rewarder. He cuts the checks. God is the one who promotes you. Everyone gets their bonuses from the Lord, ultimately. Not only in pay, not only in wages, but in life and strength and health and opportunity. The ability to get out of bed in the morning and go do what you're called to do, that's the blessing of God, our master. God is the one you're working for. He's the one you're obeying. So when we have to submit to things that we don't like, when we have to submit to things that we don't agree with, we have to submit to people we don't agree with. That means we've got to pray for a good attitude that God will change our heart and God will give us the strength to do what we're called to do, to do what we've been told to do. You see, our leaders and those in authority that are put over us in whatever sphere of life you want to plug that into, our leaders that God has put in place are judged by God and they are rewarded for how they lead. We are judged by God and we are rewarded for how we follow, not for how well we criticize how they lead, right? We're not rewarded and blessed for how cutting our criticism is. Our, our judgment and our blessing comes by our obedience and our submission to the authority that God has placed in our lives. What does all this do for you? What, why is this valuable? How does this help? Well, submission teaches us the key principle of leadership and dominion. And that is submission puts us in the shoes of those who serve. And, and when you're called to lead and when you're called to, uh, to be in charge, you're able to put yourself in the shoes of your subordinates. You, you know what, what it's like to serve. Jesus says, he who is great must be servant of all. If you can't put yourself in the shoes of your subordinates, you cannot have effective dominion and leadership. If you spend all of your time as a servant chafing under authority, you will never be an effective leader. You will never, you will never amount to anything uh, as someone who's trying to take dominion and rule and have authority. You won't. Uh, and that's the lesson we learn in the school of servanthood. And that's why God put his people repeatedly through the school of slavery to teach them submission. Now to verse 9, we go to the masters. And you masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. There are three short, powerful commands that he gives masters. One, he says, you masters do the same things to them. What does that mean? If you want respect, you got to show respect. If you want them to submit, you've got to show them how to submit to the authorities in your life. If you want service, give it. Show them how to serve. Paul doesn't give any privileged superiority to masters if they can, as if they can act however they want and their servants just have to put up with it. They can act however they want and their servants have to be respectful. That's not, that's not how Paul sets it up. One application of this I'll, I'll go ahead and make a quick application to the workplace and the other spheres of authority we might have. One application of this is that when you're in a position of authority over people, make sure that you can do every job that you're asking them to do. Make sure you have done every job that you've asked them to do. Don't ask anyone to do anything that is beneath you. Do their job alongside of them so you understand what's involved. So you understand how long that job takes. So you understand what challenges there are that you wouldn't ordinarily anticipate on the outside. It's very easy to stand across the counter from a kid working at a, at a fast food place and say, man, don't you know how to do your job? Well, unless you've been on the other side of that counter, you don't know how to do their job. You, haven't, you don't know what challenges that they're facing. You are, you, 
you're uh, unconsciously ignorant. You don't know what you don't know, uh, what they're doing, what they're putting up with. And that goes with anybody. It goes with a doctor, a lawyer, a computer programmer, or uh, you know, a, a mother uh, of all things. You, you don't know it until you've sat right next si uh, alongside of them and done it with them and done, it, uh, done that job. What challenges there are that they're facing. And that's what, that's what Paul is telling to the masters. He says, do the same things to them. Understand what their life is like and, and serve them. The second thing he says is give up threatening. Paul, with this little phrase, give up threatening, Paul walks right up to the paterfamilias and he pokes him right in the eye <laughs> because the paterfamilias was all about this foreboding, hateful, ominous, oppressive life of threatening. And he's already said this. He says, husbands are not to hate their wives. Fathers are not to provoke their children and masters are not to threaten their slaves. Don't misuse your position of authority by constantly issuing threats of punishment. Have you ever worked for a company that was ruled by fear? How productive is that? Where, where you know, well, I guess it's time for a weekly chewing out, you know, where they call everybody in a conference room and they just kind of chew everybody out for a while or there's one person doing something we don't like, but we're not going to address it with that person individually, so we're going to threaten everybody's livelihood if this doesn't change, that kind of thing. Now, that, that's a real terrible environment. That's a real toxic, uh, demotivating environment to work in, isn't it? And so when Paul says give up threatening, he's not saying that punishment is never necessary and there should never be consequences for sin, but he's saying that, that the powerful and the arrogant often use threats and foreboding ominous intimidation as a weapon over the powerless. They use threats as a weapon over the powerless, but a relationship that is built on threats is no kind of relationship at all. A relationship that is built on threats is not a godly relationship. So he says, three, know that your master is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Remember, he says, remember, you're a servant too. Jesus is master of both the slave and the master. So masters, your servant is also the servant of the Lord Jesus. So you don't abuse Jesus' servant. The, the paterfamilias was used to be fawned over and, and flattered, but, but this man should not, be, should not expect that Jesus is going to show him any favoritism. In fact, he should treat his servants the way he wants to be treated by Jesus. Well, this brings us to the end of this long section we've been studying for several weeks where Paul has been addressing these human relationships that have all been transformed through the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Jesus. Jesus has taken marriage down into the grave and he's brought it back out the other side in resurrection. He's made it something more glorious and more beautiful. Uh, Jesus has taken uh, fathers and sons and fathers and mothers and daughters and masters and servants down into the grave with him. And now everything on the other side through his resurrection, everything gets changed, everything gets glorified, everything gets intensified and, and elevated. And so in the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, there is a new way of being human. There's a new way to treat each other that is markedly, obviously different from the world. How is it different from the world? Just one last thought. How is, how is what we're being commanded to do here different from the world? Well, the world wants to flatten everything out and make everybody the same. Not, not God. God is not doing that. God has created the world with a diversity of gifts and callings. 
Now, now the, the world order wants no one to tell them what to do. I mean, of course, they want to be an authority, but they don't want to be told what to do. They don't want to serve anybody over, you know, have anybody over them. No authority, no hierarchy, no obedience, no submission. They just want to be out from under everybody's authority and nobody to tell them anything. But in the God-created world, in the order that God set up, everybody must serve somebody. If you would humor me as I quote that most preeminent of all modern poets, Bob Dylan, he says, you may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be a heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Just one more verse. He says, might like to wear cotton, might like to wear silk, might like to drink whiskey, might like to drink milk. You might like to eat caviar, you might like to eat bread. You, might, you may be sleeping on the floor, sleeping in a king-sized bed, but you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil and it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. That's what this whole section has been about. Everybody serves somebody. Everybody's a servant. Everybody submits to someone. We all submit to each other. We all subjugate ourselves to each other. Even the paterfamilias going to have to serve somebody. Everyone is under authority. So if you don't like what God tells you, if you don't like him telling you what to do, if you don't want God running your life, okay, well, you've got another master. You're going to have to serve somebody. Well, you get to serve the devil. And he's a harsh slave driver. Jesus, on the other hand, is the true master of the house. He loves his bride. He gets down on the floor and wrestles with his children. And he washes his servants' feet. And he works right alongside of his servants. He is the true master of the house. And it is an honor and it is a privilege and it is a glory to be his bondservant. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us and we thank you for calling us to be your servants. And we pray that we would take these instructions to heart as we humble ourselves and we pray that you would give us the right attitude toward those you have called us to obey and honor, those you have put in authority over us. So Father, make us all uh, uh, servants in every way that you've called us to do. Cause us to pour our lives out for each other and for the world. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.